a remarkable songwriter showcases her jazz chops. A groundbreaking track from an influential collective of producers. And a piece from the highest paid musician on the planet. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. All right, folks, another Themes and Variation coming at you. We got a fun one as we're looking at songs that made me want to study music. These are the kinds of tracks that were so powerful and maybe hit you at just the right time in your life where you really needed to dig in and understand the language of music even better. So joining me on this episode is, of course, my frequent co-host, Mejia. And for those of you that don't know, Mejia and I are actually married, and we met each other at music school. So very apropos that we did this episode together. And joining the both of us is the brilliant Ethan Hine. Ethan Hine is a doctoral fellow in music education at New York University and an adjunct professor of music technology at NYU and Montclair State University. Just such an impressive resume. He's also the author of two of my favorite Soundfly courses in Unlocking the Emotional Power of Chords and The Creative Power of Advanced Harmony. This was a really fun episode to track, and it actually marked the first time that we recorded an episode live online exclusively for our Soundfly subscribers. And we've actually got some more exciting events coming in the future, including a live Q&A with the one and only rjd2 on september 23rd so if you'd like to attend this event and access all of our incredibly extensive courses be sure to subscribe at soundfly.com and use the discount code themes to take 20 percent off and of course we get into all kinds of things on this episode like what it really means to study music the alter ego project of andrew lloyd weber and the art of fun post-human music so without further ado, let's get into the episode, Songs That Made Me Want to Study Music. All right, folks, welcome to a very special edition of Themes and Variation. We are celebrating one year of doing this podcast. Time flies when you're having fun, of course. And uh, joining me for this special edition of Themes Live, if you're a subscriber and you're, and you're joining us for the stream, thank you very much for being a part of it. But of course, Mejia Lee, Mejia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Carter. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great because cool. we have the perfect guest for our theme songs that made me want to study music. A music educator, an author, and a music maker in his own right, Mr. Ethan Hine. Ethan, how you doing, man? I'm good. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Somebody we've wanted to have on forever. I know we are kind of batting around a couple different theme ideas, and this is the one that we uh, decided to settle on. I think it was perfect for this. And knowing what you guys ended up picking, were there any other songs that you considered for this theme of songs that made you want to study music? A theme of this is going to be that I grew up in the 80s when there was no internet and you couldn't find <laughs> things out. So when I was a kid in New York, local TV constantly showed this ad for the New York City Transit Museum, and they used Take the A-Train by Duke Ellington, and I yeah. loved it. I was like, oh, this song is so cool. Too bad I will never know what it's called or who it's by. Not to, like, 
minimize the value of the song that I did choose, but it isn't the coolest selection I've ever made for the show. Mm. And I will own that. Um, but I, I guess I started studying music when I was four. So <laughs> wow. I thought about picking something that I studied like in college where I was like, oh, this actually made me really excited about a specific facet of music. Um, like uh, a lot of Debussy pieces, like the Saraband from Poor La Piano or Sunken Cathedral, stuff like that. I want to pause on just for a second there. You mentioned you started studying music when you were four. And I think that that kind of brings up an interesting question. What does it mean to both of you to study music? Because at four, you're not doing the... <laughs> you're not like probably, actually making the choice. Yeah, you're not analyzing standards or things like that. You don't know. Maybe I was. But yeah, just your general thoughts on what does it mean to you to, to quote unquote study music? I mean, I think it just means to like pay attention to it and try to like imaginatively participate in it. And you can do that... Like, I mean, the track that I'm going to talk about, like, there was no way to study that kind of music formally at all until real mm. recently. Like, the people who made it learned right. how to do that just by sitting there with their gear and figuring it out. And I I, I honor that method. Yeah, that's really Love well that. said. Yeah. I agree. I feel like it's any time you're consciously putting in effort <laughs> to not even to learn something, but to attempt to learn something. Like maybe you dive into something and there's nothing there when you come out on the other side and it's like, Oh, that didn't really give me anything but experience. But I, th I think as long as you're choosing to focus on increasing your understanding, you're studying something. Could not agree more. Um, with that, why don't we dive into our first track? I'm, I'm itching to listen to some more music with you guys. Here's my selection for the episode. Slot that's hot. I keep hearing bells all around me. Jingle in the lucky jackpots. They keep you tantalized. They keep you reaching for your wallet here in fool's paradise. I talked to a cat from Des Moines. He said he ran a cleaning plant. That cat was clanking with coin. Well, he must have had a genie in a lamp. Cause we are listening to the dry cleaner from Des Moines. Joni Mitchell, of course, with Charles Mingus. We'll get into that a little bit. This is the live version from Shadows and Light. The original version, of course, uh, was originally released on Joni's album Mingus. She did a collaboration with the legendary bassist composer Charles Mingus. It was actually the last musical project that he did before his death, I think a few months later. I'm always... Anytime Mingus comes up, I'm always reminded of... Um, it was in a bass lab at... at at Berkeley, which sounds cooler than it probably actually is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we were talking about rhythm and Mingus had a really unique way of like, if you listen to it, just his ensembles, how elastic the rhythm feels across the ensembles, not just like the bass players a little bit back or the drums or like there is a, a, a cohesive sound, but everything is together, but still super stretched and, and very elastic. He had a way of thinking about rhythm where every beat was a giant, circle and every player could play in this part of the circle maybe this part of the circle maybe back on this end maybe low so there's a dynamic range a linear range of where you're going to play on the circle and then an angular range as well like front and and back so um i'm always just blown away by that 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 concept and, and something we hear obviously in 
you know, again, the Dilla, of course, there's there's cohesion. It's not just like, oh, we'll play away on the back of the beat. There's there's right. actually something very unique happening there. Uh, Ethan, you actually mentioned uh, earlier before we, we tracked this, I think uh, even just in the email thread that your favorite uh, Joni album, I believe. So any any insights or thoughts on this on this record? So, I mean, Joni has always been like a jazz nerd, right? Yeah. Um, but like. I feel like, you know, all this kind of late 70s stuff, right? Hissing of Summer Lawns and like Court and Spark, you know, it shows that. But but she never gets more jazzy than when she is literally co-writing songs with Charles Mingus. I mean, that's... And, and plus, I mean, the band on that album is nuts, yeah. right? It's just like who's who of, you know, <laughs> that era of jazz. And, and they play in really cool ways, too. They play differently than they do in like Weather Report and stuff. They, they hold back a little more and kind of serve the... They're there to back up her, right? They're not there to shred. I, I like I like Jocko when he's a little more constrained. Which is not the track that I, I picked. If you put Jocko <laughs> in a live setting, you know you're not getting restrained Jocko. Like there's a, he's doing backflips off his amp literally onto his bass. Like that is what you're gonna get from a live Jocko performance. I love a good Jocko tangent for sure. I, I do have to admit that at this time I was certainly on the path to becoming a Jocko clone. I'm incredibly indebted to John Taylor at McEwen, my first real uh, teacher and, and professor, and I got to to study with him very closely. And um, he went, he did the same thing. He was through the same path many years before, and was like, "Hey, like, yeah, you can play. That's great. Then you can play like Portrait Tracy and all that stuff. But like, <laughs> you're starting to sound like you're just trying to cop his stuff. So like, go off and do your own thing. And yeah. there's a lot of ways to go about doing it. Some of the things that I pulled from from um, him for sure on this record is, you know. We know Portrait Tracy and his use of harmonics, but actually using harmonics in a setting with a band like this, all over this track. So I'll play a quick example of that for you guys here. Chorus being, you know, it's Jocko. There's going to be some some incredible chops in it, and the uh, this remarkable triplet. Uh, situation here at the end of this track is just incredible. I looked at this song from the lens of what was it like for me before school? Like pretty green, had no idea what I was doing with a lot of stuff. Um, I could barely get around the fretboard at the time too. And then now looking at it, after school and having that hindsight of, of having studied music mm-hmm. formally, having studied it just on my own. The thing that stands out to me, of course, is Joni's verse. The first verse, yeah. uh, Don Elias playing drums and complimenting everything that she's playing and like so rhythmically and melodically. But her, her verse, man, it's totally unaccompanied other than the drums. There's no harmonic accompaniment. And she's spelling out the changes. so be- And that's a perfectly written melody. When you hear a really good solo, you can hear the changes without the comping of the piano or the walking bass line. I, you go back to the cello suites, you listen to any of the Bach cello suites, you hear harmony through a single line. And, and that always yeah. is, is absolutely incredible. Just listen again, just to her, this verse, like, unbelievable. They keep you reaching for your wallet here in fool's paradise. I talked to a cat from Des Moines. He said he ran a cleaning plant. That cat was clanking with coin. Well, he must have had a genie in a lamp. Because every time I dropped a dime, I blew it. He kept bringing Another thing, like when I didn't know and then maybe learned later, the jazz blues changes. Um, you know, when, when Joni's singing, you can hear 
traditional blues kind of being spelled out. You get one chord, your four chord, and your five. And then Jocko enters, and you do get the you get some two five ones. Like typically in the ninth bar, you go straight to the to the five chord. But in a jazz blues, you're going to get a two five to the one. You're going to get in this case in B flat, you're going to get C minor to F seven to B flat, and then the turnaround three six two five. Circus, circus, where the cowgirls fill the room with their big balloons. The cleaner was pitching with purpose. He had two bears and lions, pink and blue there. He couldn't lose there. One thing I do with this track, too, that comes up sometimes as a, as a bass player and a predominantly electric player, is you hear, like, oh, you can't swing on electric bass. You got to play upright. I would point you to this this track for sure, and like Jocko's swinging his ass off on this one. Like, there's no, he is swinging so hard, and he's playing fretless, so maybe that helps a little bit. I think that that comes to maybe the upright, the the decay of the note, that like it doesn't last as long. Mm-hmm. It maybe has a really boomy front end, and you can really kind of hear the weight of it right away, and then it falls. Um, where electric, it, yeah, it's going to sustain more, so you just have to learn to maybe to approach it differently. Um, and the way to do that would be to transcribe upright players on an, uh, on an electric bass, which I'm sure, you know, I don't, I don't know Jocko personally, but having read so much about him and his book and everything, uh, yeah, that's, those are things that he was doing. Um, another thing that I learned about this, I learned it was Michael Brecker playing saxophone, of course, on, on oh, the solo. Course. Now, Brecker, like, you, you'll know him as, um, some people might know him as, he was in, S, in the SNL band for, for many, many years. I feel like he was that band. He was. And this, That's the sound you recognize. You well, the, guitar, the guitar player from that time, I can't, but he had a ponytail. I can't remember his name. Gene like, Smith. There it is. There it is. Gene yeah, Smith. of course. Yeah, I was like, that home is like, what a gig to have for like, like multiple decades. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, Brecker... Um, on this, like he's playing this incredible solo, all these, certainly a disciple of Coltrane, but somebody that has found his own voice on his instrument yeah. for sure. Um, he's playing all these incredible lines. And then there's a moment where you can go like, oh yeah, that guy was in the SNL band. So I want to show <laughs> this, this lick here, which I love. I absolutely love this lick, but I got to share it. Yeah, of course, hundred <laughs> percent. Musical guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, a- absolutely. And I love like he's building tension, tension, tension. I'm gonna hit you yeah. with this this cheesy like. And Jocko's clearly <laughs> listening, and he's supporting, and like so learning about the importance of listening in any context, whether it's jazz, anything else. Just like listening to the people you're making <laughs> music with is really important. Something that I had no concept of before. I was so worried about like. What am I playing? Oh my God! Am I pl- is what I'm playing going to work? Is it, it's like you find out if it's working by listening to, <laughs> to everybody. Surprise, surprise.
So, Ethan, what uh, what are we listening to? So, we're listening to um, this. Uh, it's like a bunch of British DJs, like a dance music producers. It's called M A R R S, but it was like a bunch of different people who were all on the same label who were just like, let's try and make a dance record. And so, I mean, music wise, you're pretty much just hearing like a drum machine and then a bunch of samplers and turntables and that's it (laughs) and now in 2021 i can like go on wikipedia or sample.com and tell you ah yes the brothers and sisters is from this james brown song and the you know that is you know uh, they're scratching this record but at the in the 80s when this was on the radio for a brief instant i was just like what kind of thing from a hundred years in the future (laughs) am i experiencing right now just the idea that you could take a bunch of existing songs and make a new song out of them yeah well i mean that is something that i feel like the culture is still kind of catching up with all these decades later yeah you know, one of the most frustrating things about being a musician, right, is the fact of just recorded music. Like, there's so much of it. Mm. And it's so accessible. And people would so rather listen to it than you. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I struggled for many years with the fact that, like, so, I, mean, I had, like, a funk band. And, like, anybody would rather listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire than my funk band, including me, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we even doing? Like, yeah. yeah. And, and I felt that as just this oppressive kind of weight until I kind of got caught back up with hip hop and dance music and realized like these guys solved the problem back in the eighties. They're like, it's not a weight. It's an opportunity. It's raw material. You could just play these things like an instrument also. I saw too this this uh, was nominated for for Grammy in 89 and lost oh. out to uh, for best uh, pop instrumental performance. It lost out to Close Up by David Sanborn. I have not heard that record. I'm I've got I've got the record pulled up. One. We're going to listen to this together. I, have you have either of you heard this like, record? Not since 1989. No. No. Yeah, and I'm going to guess there's not enough O's and smooth for it, but we're let's have a little <laughs> listen to it. I'm not sure. I will admit guilty pleasure, like walking around a mall when we used to be able to do that and you hear tracks like this. I'm so down. Like when you hear like a, (laughs) just a smoke and like alto saxophone. Oh man, it is really sick. Like really good on hold music. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Cool. Anything else from pump up the volume, Ethan, you want to, you want to highlight for us any clips, anything you want to listen to specifically? So I want to, uh, direct your attention to uh two minutes and seven seconds there's this chant automatic systematic so that's um Grand Mixer DST, who's the MC, uh, the MC, the DJ on Rocket by Herbie Hancock. Yeah, oh, uh, that's sick. a sample of him, and he's scratching in like the Last Poets, and it's actually like a pretty serious like Last Poets kind of critique of you know the hellish dystopia that is modern society. Automatic push button, remote control, synthetic genetics, command your soul. Automatic push button, remote control, synthetic. 
And so first of all, it's sped up a little bit and it, you know, it feels a little bit more playful, but I'm like, yeah, this kind of music is pretty bleak, actually. <laughs> like the whole vibe of it is like, it's obviously fun, but also it, like, I'm, I'm like going to a party in Blade Runner, you know? Like, <laughs> um, and I think that's like a pretty neat trick. Like when you can make yeah. stuff that is so kind of post-human, still mm. be so fun, that, yeah. that to me is an achievement. Obviously, like the song had made an, an impact on you, but just in a in a general sense, Ethan, what is it that that kind of takes for a song to to really make a, a like to really move you? I mean, I like it when they tell the truth. Mm. I guess. So the reason this jumped off the radio so hard for me in the eighties was like the main thing you heard on the radio in the eighties was like guys from the sixties and seventies trying yeah. to hold on. Right. Yep. Like the Eagles had a lot of big songs yep. in the 80s. And those are mo- and I kind of love the Eagles, but those that stuff is kind of depressing. And now I can mm. put my finger on why, which is like, nah, dude, like that. That's not that's not what is going on anymore. Right. Mm. Like, yeah, computers exist now. Like machines <laughs> exist, samplers exist. And like, you know, um, pump up the volume in this other like, um, you know, house music and, and rap of that era. They were like. We're just trying to react to the world as it exists, not as we wish it existed or not as we remembered existing when we were teenagers, but like just how do we process the insanity of the world and try to put it in music? I'm like, that's like a hard thing to do, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I always admire people who do it. It's that whole like art is society's mirror kind of thing, you know, like why not try to use what you're doing to say something that matters at least every now and then, you know, like sometimes, yeah, just make, make a beat because it's fun and because you want to dance to it or make a track because you want to make money off of it, whatever. But to me, the real reason for music's existence is to say something you can't quite articulate with just words, you know? Yeah. Well, and also like, you know, like, so, I mean, these guys didn't like invent the concept of like repurposing existing audio, but like, you know, when like Carlheinz Stockhausen does it, it's to, shock you out of your bourgeois complacency or whatever Mm -hmm. he was trying to do. Um, And these guys are like, hey, let's take this jarring, disorienting, like collage of fragments and make it something you could dance to. I'm like, that's that's advanced. Yeah, people will be more receptive that way, too. (laughs) Your message will probably have a better chance of getting across. I'm I'm curious. So you you hear the song and and it's going to push you to like, get better and study music in some capacity, right? What was the first step after, like, is there a through line from this song? And then, you know, I went and bought, and bought like a drum machine or something like what, what was the, what like maybe was the first step in studying uh, music that, that maybe you could relate to this track? First, I had to spend a, a decade or three just <laughs> getting rid of a bunch of white nonsense about authenticity yeah. and like real instruments. Mm. Uh, like, yeah. I didn't start producing stuff like this until late 90s, early 2000s. So, yeah, 10 years. Um, and it felt like a real transgression when I did start doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, purely just because of, like, this idiotic idea that, like, doing stuff with computers is cheating somehow. Right. Which, but, yeah, some of my peers never get over that. Yeah. yeah. I think even today too like that yeah having studied jazz in, in a large school with <laughs> yeah, a lot of it's like jazz friends like yeah, yeah. 
you know, oh, so, the classical too. That yeah. was I. So I did the leap from classical to jazz, to like pop and um, other genres. And every single step, it was like, oh, there's a little more. Like this is hard because part of my brain doesn't want to break rules that were that don't really exist. You know, it's like that Debussy thing: <laughs> works of art make rules, not the other way around. I know I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, the rules aren't real things <laughs> unless you hold on to them and allow them to be there in that way so yeah yeah and you can definitely make boring lazy corny sample based dance music but you can make boring lazy corny any kind of music yeah mm-hmm. and and doing this kind of dance music well is not easy at all that's right So there's a bunch of turntable scratching on, it sounds like, ah, 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 like mm. all throughout. And um, that's a record called Change Le Beat by B-Side, which is the most scratched record. Um, at the end of the record, it's a guy talking through a vocoder and saying, ah, this stuff is really fresh. And you hear that, <laughs> ah, and fresh. Fantastic selection, Ethan. Was there, um, I guess, studying music? Has that changed your taste in music at all? Have you have you seen that? Like, because I, you know, I'm kind of see how the the sausage is made, so to speak, a little bit. Has that changed? Um, just yeah, the, the music that you decide to listen to uh, for pure enjoyment. It helped me to disabuse myself of the notion of the guilty pleasure. Mm. Mm. Um, like getting like I got a little bit of education and then was like shredding and then I got more education was just like no just pleasure just joy that's the only thing that matters like all the stuff that I liked when I was 12 is still stuff that at 46 I'm still super into now I can just explain to you why no more talk of darkness Forget these wide-eyed fears I'm here, nothing can harm you My words will warm and calm you Let me be your freedom Let daylight dry your tears I'm here, with you, beside you To guard you and to guide you so, Mahaya, what are we listening to? We are listening to the song All I Ask of You from The Phantom of the Opera, written by the um, financially most successful <laughs> musician on the face of yeah. planet Earth, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yep. More significantly to me personally, we are listening to probably the reason I am who I am today, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I, I suppose I should explain. And this is an, an odd thing to say, but this play seeing it was the first time I have a conscious memory of experiencing wonder, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which I think it is kind of a unique thing to be able to pinpoint the first time you experienced wonder in the world. But for me, it was seeing the Phantom of the Opera as a four-year-old. I hadn't been to like Disneyland or anything like that yet. So the spectacle of costumes and sets and a, a crowd that size, there's like a sense of identity wrapped up in this. And it's all really strange to me that it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber song that I um, 
you know, we saw Phantom of the Opera in New York before the pandemic, and it was wonderful, but a lot cheesier than I remembered. <laughs> but as a kid, you're not cynical yet. Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. Yeah. I mean, my kids are five and eight, and they love this kind of stuff mm-hmm. because, like, it's just the feelings are just right there. They're there. And no yeah. irony, yeah. no air quotes, no, yeah. Exactly. I was going to say, to be fair, I'm not actually, like, ashamed of the fact that I do still love musicals, and I will usually start crying by the end of an overture a little bit the same way I do when I um, watch trailers for a movie, and <laughs> there's all those emotions thrown at you at once. What what kind of robot would you have to be to not feel feelings from that stuff, though? Right. Like, how numbed out would you have to be? Like, I agree. And I'm that's trying to decide if I'm that robot or not. <laughs> it might, I, I think there's a stigma, right? There's a stigma to musical theater, and I'm not saying this is your situation, Carter, because I think in your case, like you played in the pit for several rent, shows right after college. Played rent. Yeah. And yeah, that, that could would be, like, the Rent was fun, though. Yeah. Rent, rent, I have a... Because I, I was trying to make Rent right out of college. So being Ooh. able to play Rent was... Uh, that was a fun show. I really enjoyed it, actually. But, but yeah. I think there is a little bit of, like, trauma that sometimes comes out of that. Like, I was a music director for children's musicals. After college oh, for a while. Yeah, it was great, was but awesome. a slightly traumatic experience, you know. So I, I understand, in your case, some of the hesitancy. I, but yeah, there's a stigma against musical theater that I find interesting because it's different than the stigma that people have about opera. Yeah. <laughs> opera is supposed to be, you know, it's like this thing for old people and it's boring, but it's not. It's also cheesy and over the top. It's just <laughs> older. <laughs> you know? yeah. but... There's not a lot of daylight between, I don't no. think... It's the show of it all. And I think on top of experiencing wonder, it's the first time I realized art can manipulate your emotions. You can make people feel things that they're not organically going to feel if not for hearing something you wrote or performed. And that's kind of amazing, um, if scary. But anyway, just to wrap up my experience with this song, at four, That's it was also shortly after I had started piano lessons. So this is the first piece of music I ever chose to play. I had a really great teacher who I didn't obviously realize was really great at the time, but he actually made an arrangement that my tiny little hands could hold on to. That's awesome. And uh, included even a measure where I had to stand up to reach the sustain pedal because that's the only way I could do it. Um, But some of his arrangements, very cool. (laughs) Like he added passing tones and things to the arrangement. What makes that neat is the idea that you can make a song your own was something that was a part of my musical experience, like from the get go, you know, mm-hmm. let me let me just uh, a public service announcement. <laughs> if you're planning on having children out there, especially in America, make peace with musical theater, man, because your <laughs> life is going to consist of alternating screenings of Frozen and yeah. Moana and you can love it or not love it. And if you choose to love it, the experience will be a lot be more fine. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You're in tough if you don't, for sure. You know, I, I remember going, I, it was probably 2014 or 15, we went and oh saw God. it in New York. And, and that was really cool. I think that's a, a quintessential New York experience. I think if you live in New York, going to a musical absolutely is great. It makes sense. And I, I really enjoyed myself. I think. The main theme hits so hard.
and it happened a lot in and in, 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 like live i didn't realize it went also like the story literally is just a man lives in like the basement of an opera house right that's basically the gist of kind phantom of, of the it, opera, it's right? a novel that like has a lot more to it but yeah <laughs> basically it's it's a man who lives in an opera house and is like haunting it he meets a young like like protege basically that he takes under his wing when I was interning at Electric Lady in the West Village and started hearing that there were ghost stories about Jimi Hendrix, I definitely had this like fantasy that I was going to have a uh, fan of the opera situation yeah. with the ghost of Jimi Hendrix. Didn't happen. There, there is a musical someone should write, by the way. There I is. know. Yeah. You've got some clips for us, though, as well, that not from this song. Am I jumping ahead? or would You're you jumping like ahead share? a little bit. Okay. Um, Take us away. If it's okay. So I was just going to say about the song itself. So Andrew Lloyd Webber sometimes gets um, criticized for kind of writing the same stuff over and over again, which, you, as you'll see from one of our examples later, it's a little bit fair. Yeah. Um, but there's like a formula to some of this music where when you talk about perceived rules from music theory, a lot of this stuff follows those guidelines and does it well you know like when the vocals come in and they harmonize it's usually done in thirds or sixths which are really consonant and beautiful and give the singers the opportunity to succeed like the dynamics swell when they should swell like it's it's somewhat predictable but in a way that that works and i think some of that is that fine line between like loving musical theater and hating it like it's gonna be cheesy it's probably gonna do the things you expect it to do and it's gonna be kind of great because of that but that doesn't mean that you have to listen to it after you've seen the show over and over you know so okay so the other thing that i think musical theater songs have and arrangements um that they i guess have the space to do that other forms of music don't always have is um they can use the arrangement to really really follow what's going on in the lyrics or the scene you know like you get time changes in this that don't mm -hmm. feel quite like time changes they feel more like a rubato yeah between like that or when the modulations happen in musical theater you get these big drastic things that don't come out of nowhere somehow and i i find that interesting as an arranger you know that you can follow the lyrics and you have this narrative to guide you so much and so literally i'm dying to listen to some clips because yeah you, you, can, can we, we yeah <laughs> so so i did say earlier that andrew lloyd Webber sometimes gets criticized for more or less writing the same thing over and over again you're writing musical theater within a show. You're forgiven for that in my book. Like, it's a theme coming back and it keeps us in the narrative. I'm not okay with the fact that this happened, though. Carter, can you play yep. the Placido Domingo track? Oh, you bet I can. I, this is awesome. Here we go. I don't talk to strangers. It seems a waste of time to hear someone you don't know. It's the same song. Yeah, that line, I, I don't talk to strangers. It seems like a waste of time. <laughs> it seems a waste of time. There's no like, come on. Hey, the guy's, you know, 
the most highly paid or lucrative musician of all time for a reason. He's working smarter, not harder. He's using the same <laughs> stuff. He didn't have time to write new songs, but hey, he's like, I just gotta gotta make that money. Come on. But that that opening line is is probably <laughs> the lyrics aren't my favorite. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, that to me is definitely repurposing your material in a very extreme way. Okay. Now, this comparison might be a little bit appalling, but um, so you know, um, Johann Sebastian Bach's E major violin partita, the prelude. He reused that a bunch of times, mm. a bunch of times. Like there's some cantata that uses it, and then there's like another that. thing that uses it, like. If, like if Bach can do it, yeah, then so can Weber. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I was, I'm but like, to it's funny. It up, that's interesting. Like Bach didn't have the issue of like, like he was just writing for like churches and courts and king. Like, I don't know. I don't know what he did back with the gig. It was, but like was he wasn't going to be worried about yeah. like this is going to get streamed somewhere and like I like it felt maybe like a more. You know, like smaller audience. Now people are exactly. going to be pointing it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can get away with this. Nobody's going to know in the future. There's going to be no internet or anything like that. So, well, yeah, um, this is like writing a song for one of the biggest singers in the world <laughs> as well. So it's like, it. yeah, it's going to get heard. <laughs> Working smarter, not harder, <laughs> like you said, Carter. I think he works hard. To be clear, yeah, of he's course, like he's of course. so prolific. Um, but yeah, in addition to all of that, speaking of him being prolific, he has an alter ego project that people may or may not be familiar. Ethan, do you know about Andrew Lloyd Webber's alter ego? No. Oh, okay. You're in for a treat. <laughs> You're going to dig this. It's from 92, too. Um, Damn. Right? So that's a project called Dr. Spin. And Dr. it is Spin. a collaboration with someone who's a producer. So I don't know the extent to which he's involved in some of those choices. But yeah, he's making Tetris-based dance themes in his spare time. He also wrote songs for gigantic artists. He wrote a song for Boyzone. He wrote a song for Elvis. Wow. That I did not know. And that's how you become the highest paid musician on the face of the planet. You only have to be known for one thing, but do it all. Ethan, I, thank you so much for, for being a part of this uh, we could not have found a better guest for this theme. So we're talking uh, songs that made us want to study music. I got to cop to something. This might be the first time you've guested on the podcast, but I do have to admit your blog came in extremely handy when we had Kimbra on on the show and I picked uh, Chance the Rapper's track when I, I picked All We Got. And your breakdown of that track was just so valuable to me for that episode. So thank you very much for that. So in addition to, I mean, the blog is incredible. Um, you have a brand new book out, yes. right? Uh, ele uh, Electronic Music School, Contemporary Approach to Teaching Musical Creativity that you wrote with Will Kuhn. Can you please tell us, uh, just anything, the floor is yours. Please, you got Groove Pizza too, and app. there's so much that you're up to. Uh, please share it all. So 
The book is for music teachers who want to teach beat making, songwriting, production, all these things that get under the music technology umbrella. Um, so I co-wrote it with uh, Will Kuhn, who's the coolest high school music teacher in America. <laughs> and, you know, it has lesson plans and stuff in it, but also how do you create lesson plans and how do you keep it fresh? Because yeah. like, if you want to be doing this kind of music, you got to keep it fresh. And, you know, it, how do you get familiar as a music teacher with music that the kids know better than you? Yeah. Not only how do you teach creativity, but how do you develop your own creativity as an educator? Because if you're going to teach creativity, you got to practice it. And so that's what the book is about. Awesome. That sounds fascinating. And musically, I know you're still, you're making music. I mean, you're, you're working on a PhD, right? Like what else are you up to? Where can people find you? I mean, like, I don't know where you have the time for all this stuff. You're also a dad too. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand how it's possible, but anything else you want to share with our, our listeners, uh, what you're up to? Ethanhine.com, man. That's, that's where And that's going to do it for this episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know the songs that made you want to study music. So as always, there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. Remember to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.